Well, Merry Christmas. We are three days away, and so we need to do a little bit of last-minute Advent Christmas training this morning. Maybe some of you need to do a little last-minute Christmas shopping. Unless you painted a sheep and still need to pick it up, I can't help you with your last-minute Christmas shopping needs. But please take those. But we need to do some last-minute training. Um, Here in the month of December and Advent, we have been um, lighting a candle each week for the Advent wreath, which is kind of moving us toward Christmas and remembering um, things like hope, peace, joy, and today, love. So we're going to do some love training. Are you ready? Here in the gymnasium of the soul. All right, so training, it's important. Um, if you are setting out to do some love training, it's, you are probably saying, yes, I desire love. And you're also saying, yes. I want more love, and it's possible to have more love. And you're probably also saying, in wanting more love, you're saying there's also something that we need to resist to make space in our lives for that love to come in. So part of the training is resisting some things. So that's where we're going to begin today. First, the resisting of things, and then doing some love training, God's story of love. That's where we're going. So first, some things we need to resist. Two things. Um, First thing we need to resist is this human tendency to overly focus on the past. Have you ever realized this in yourself, this, like, looking at the past too much? So, we tend to ruminate on mistakes we made, mistakes others have made, ruminate and wallow in being hurt or hurts that we have caused. We can tend to get caught in this shame cycle that just spins around and around, thinking about the past and being stuck there. And God is not nearly as concerned about the past as we seem to be. You know, we spin around thinking about those things, but God is excited instead about the present moment. I think God is excited about the present moment where there's this opportunity to make a choice to love and to move forward into the future differently because you choose that love. So God isn't as concerned about the past as we are, as we get sucked in. You know, as we lose hope, God has eternal hope. God has this expectation that the next choice can be a choice of love. So, I just want to read a couple of passages to put these in your mind as part of your training today to think about God. These come from the Old Testament. And sometimes people get down on the Old Testament that um, God is not nearly as loving. But I'm here to say this morning, God is incredibly loving also in the Old Testament. And you'll see that throughout the morning, hopefully. So first, Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I don't know if you've measured the distance between east and west, but God has infinitely removed our transgressions. He's not focused on those things in our past. 
And also from the prophet Micah, who wrote, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So again, this over-obsession we have with the past, in God's perspective, those sins and shame is just thrown out to the bottom of the sea. So we need to resist dredging it back up again. All right, the second tendency that we need to resist in our humanity is this tendency toward the negativity bias or the negativity effect. Now, if you have some time in the next few days, it is actually fascinating to Google negativity bias and learn more about this human tendency to prefer negative over positive. <clears throat> it's like we trust negative information to be more true than neutral or positive information. So, here's an easy example of <clears throat> the negativity bias and how it plays out in our life. Here at the end of the year, perhaps um, <clears throat> tomorrow, m Monday, you're going to go into the office and get an annual review at work. And you go in and your boss says, oh, you have been the most valuable player this year. You've overproduced everybody else. You've done a wonderful job. But beyond that, your character as a person and as a coworker has just been delightful to be around. And they say, well, and it's an end-of-year review, so I have to, you know, something to improve on. So the thing that we would like you to improve on is putting your dishes away in the staff kitchen. And you go home that night, what is your mind ruminating on? Not the praise and the accolades. We get stuck on that tiny little, oh, just put your dishes away, please. And we just can't get away from that. You know, in thinking about um, marriages and couples, um, the negativity bias is, plays out in an interesting way that somebody somehow figured this out, but that healthy couples have a five- positive things to one negative thing ratio in their relationship. And so if that number goes down, then that negative spiral starts setting in where it just goes negative. So we need positive to overcompensate for this negativity bias in our relationships. You know, another place you can see this is in this odd paradox um, about honesty and dishonesty. Um, if you think about somebody that you think is dishonest as a person, you know, that dishonest person may do something honest once in a while. And we still think they're dishonest, but they may do that. But if you are an honest person and people are like, yes, you are an honest person, and then you do one tiny little dishonest thing, what happens? You are out. You are no longer in the honest club. You're moved over to the dishonest group. We just slide to the negative and it's this interesting thing that the negativity bias kind of influences us to trust and want negative. It's like um, negative things are an attention magnet. They're like just pulling us in. And positive things, neutral. We don't even think about them. We just let those slide by. All right, my last illustration, hopefully, to help you kind of grasp the idea of the negativity bias. We are going into 2020, and it's an election year. 
And you may see some commercials that reflect the negativity bias. I don't know if you know this, but commercials are not about the positive, wonderful things of the candidate. Commercials are made about the negative things about the other candidate. And the reason is there's this negativity bias that we trust the negative to be more true. We are more motivated to vote against a candidate based on negative information than we are motivated to vote for somebody based on positive information. Isn't that fascinating? That'll play out all next year, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we humans, we have this negativity bias. But God does not. God is eternally hopeful. God expects love to happen. You know, where we're expecting, you know, something bad to happen, God just expects the next choice will be a choice for love and goodness. So part of our Advent training is for us to push against our obsession with the past and some of that shame. Our Advent training is to push against some of the negativity bias that just kicks in naturally. And instead of in pushing against that in order to create space in our life to open up and welcome in God's love. That's the training. So speaking of holiday training, maybe you've begun this, um, but have you noticed that there's a national phenomenon in the Hallmark Christmas movie industry? Apparently in 2018, Hallmark made 37 unique, exactly the same movies. <laughs> you're laughing because you're familiar with this. 37. And this year they made like 40-some more. Hallmark is tapping into something that is within us in our desire around Christmas. And I think they're tapping into something of wanting to push against the negativity bias and what they're doing is they're just doing something positive to create that space. So, um, Hallmark, they clearly have a formula for their movies. Many of you are familiar. And each movie is essentially the same with some, you know, variables, and they're very predictable. Um, but it taps into something in us. And there's some desires that we have that those movies meet. And I think one desire is for family and time with family. We have this idea that we are spread across the nation, around the world, and in our disconnected from family, we long for that family time of being together and, and connecting and memories and rootedness. Second desire is simply escape, just to escape. And so in these movies, you see this um, portrayal of everybody being in the big city, overworked, overstressed, and wanting to get out to go to the little tiny town. And uh, that's the escape. Just go there and it's peaceful. Third um, desire in these movies that's being met is not a desire for, but a desire against isolation. And we feel in our country that we're alone in this. We're just alone. And we want this kind of idyllic small town of everyone knows their neighbor. We desire this. And also, if you've seen, there's also several movies about Mr. Rogers, same idea that we're desiring this neighbor 
Not isolation, but connectedness. And then fourth, and last one mentioned here, but Hallmark is presenting something that fits this desire for conflict-free. You know, no worries, you know, no political tension, no, like, uncomfortable differences, just worry-free and easy. And so that's what Hallmark gives us in their Christmas movies. And in their movies, Christmas is simply a cozy fireplace, family gathered, decorating a Christmas tree, and opening presents. And that formula we can go to for an escape from all the negative inside of us and coming at us. Escape that for a moment. Just have something positive. But this morning, our Advent training, we want to take the next step. Not just resisting the negativity bias, but now welcoming in God's love. Welcoming it into our lives and letting it fill all of us. And so in order for that to happen, we need a good, healthy dose of God's love coming at us. Good amount. Because we don't want just an escape for a couple hours from the negativity bias in us. We want God to move in with his love and remove the negativity bias altogether so that we can go forward with his love and make that next choice of expecting love with God. So that's what we're training on today. And for our love training this morning, I would like to review the story of God's love. And my hope is that by reviewing the story of God's love, it'll be something that'll be on our minds and it'll sink down and steep into our lives and fill us up and help fill us with love. For the purpose of training, I hope this is a useful metaphor, but it might help for your training to just close your eyes and imagine yourself as a coffee mug filled with warm water, and God's love is like the tea that goes into the water, and as it steeps, it spreads out all through the water and transforms that water into a tasty beverage. That's what we're hoping to happen with God's love coming into us and steeping through our whole life and filling us up. So, the story of God's love. It begins with God as the Trinity. You know, because God existed way before the creation of this world. And so for all that time, God existed as three persons as one God. Now, we're not going to dig into understanding that exactly this morning, but just to appreciate the idea that God is three different persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in that, they have relationship and interaction and personality and they're communicating. And in that relationship, they love each other. They appreciate each other. They enjoy each other. There's, there's goodness happening just in that relationship all by itself. And so, when it comes to creation, creation is just this expression out of what's already present in God of love and enjoyment and delight. So that's the beginning, that thing within God. And out of that love, God then creates the world. And creating the world is a lot like Christmas cookies because 
You think about somebody you know who just loves to bake. They just love to measure and mix and make shapes and decorate, and they love the smell. They just love and enjoy baking, just for themselves, for their enjoyment, for their pleasure. They bake. Now, Christmas comes along, and Christmas gives them this double-bounce opportunity to do what they love, bake, and to have a purpose, to then share that cookies with others and to, like, bless others and say, I love you through that giving, right? So there's two sides. Just do it because they love it, and then also to give is love. And God is the same way. This is the amazing thing about God. God created just out of his own desire and enjoyment and pleasure and fun. I think about all the crazy number of insects in our world that God didn't need to make, but he just did because it was so fun to make insects. And then to make birds to eat the insects. God was just expressing for his own pleasure. But once he created, then his creation became a, rec a recipient of his love. It became this place where love could go to and for it to become, um, to be given and to receive and to give back. It's just a beautiful thing. So, God's love created, just his desire. But then God's love didn't stop at, after creation. You know, some people will say that, oh, you know, God is like a clockmaker who just loves to make clocks. He winds them up, sticks them on the shelf, and they run, and God's done. But you know what? God never stepped back from his creation. In fact, if God was a clockmaker, it'd be more like God was constantly turning the clock. His involvement was essential. So in creation, God is present in the maintaining and sustaining of everything ongoingly, constantly. God never takes a break. He just gives love and grace and pours it out at all times. He's holding it all together. And Richard Rohr uses a phrase I like. He says that God's grace and love is the goodness glue that holds it all together. The goodness glue. And here's one thing, something that Richard Rohr wrote. He said... The death side of things grabs our imagination and fascinates us, as fear and negativity always do, I'm sad to say. We have to be taught how to look for anything infinite, positive, or good, which is for some reason more difficult. We have spent centuries of philosophy trying to solve the problem of evil, yet I believe the much more confounding an astounding issue is the problem of good. How do we account for so much gratuitous and sheer goodness in our world? And that's exactly what we're doing today in our love training. We're pushing back against the negative, and we're trying to say, God, we see your gratuitous goodness that you just lavish on us. In the story of God's love, God gave humanity the power to choose him back. And the one command early on in the beginning was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that interesting? The knowledge of good and evil. Because as soon as they ate that fruit, 
and broke the command, immediately the negativity bias just settled right in. Immediately there was this pull to the negative that they couldn't see goodness in the same way anymore. And they were just like, their attention was pulled like a magnet to negative. But God's love, God's goodness did not change. God continued with his love story. You know, as the story unfolds in the Old Testament, we see that God wants to begin doing some things to help restrain evil, pull back some of the, like, negative repercussions of all this negative. So God's doing some things to restrain, but also God's trying to motivate, to inspire people to love and to his goodness. So the first thing God does to restrain evil is at the Tower of Babel. God confuses their language so that they can't, like, as easily have meetings to conspire evil together. And, of course, evil still continues to grow. So God's second thing is he said, okay, I'm going to just start over. Flood. Do the flood. But what's fascinating is that if you notice that God decides to, like, start over, and then he says to Noah, hey, will you build this ship that's going to take 120 years for you to build. Even in that, God is giving lots of space for people to choose to move away and resist the negative and to move toward love. Of course, evil keeps growing even after the flood. And God's next move is to choose one person who he will create a nation, a people who will be his very own. You know, a group of people who God will speak to, God will teach and instruct and come alongside. He'll care for them and provide for them. And that group of people will then become the example for all the rest of the world to see. Oh, those are the people of God. God must be so loving and good because look at those people. That was the idea, that the people of God would be representatives for the whole world to see God's goodness. God keeps over and over trying to pour out his love. He keeps trying. But here in the example of even Israel, their story, their story is this, this over and over, like, oh, we love God, and then falling away and worshiping idols. And then, oh, yes, oh, coming back, yep, we are committed and we'll follow you, God. And then falling away and worshiping other things. That is the pattern over and over that we see with God's people. And it seems, as you read the Old Testament, that God's love is not strong enough to overcome the negativity bias. And at times it's even comical how this is true. Do you remember when God released the people of Israel out of Egypt in slavery? Remember how God came with the ten plagues, like these ten amazing things to like convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And then God gets them out and parts the water so that they can cross over and get away. And then they get over to the, this new place and, and God starts feeding them miraculously every morning. Here you go, manna every day. And when they grumble and complain, God will then give them some quail, some meat to eat. And if they get thirsty, God will, like, get it out of a rock. God is doing all these amazing things, including 
physically, visibly being present with them. God says, okay, I will be in this cloud by day and this fire by night. You will know that I'm right here with you. God's doing all these things. And what do the people want? The people want to go back to Egypt in slavery. It, it's, it's so ridiculous, it's almost comical. God's goodness is being like dumped on them, and they want something different. God is really trying hard, but this negativity bias is hard to overcome. Can I say something about God's wrath? I think in our human brokenness, in our negativity bias, we latch on to things like God's wrath, the negative, and just like glam onto it. But then over here, God's love, it just kind of slides right off of us. It's easy. It's sad, but this seems to be the truth that we give more weight and attention to the negative and just don't tend to trust the positive. A few weeks ago in November, we did a series on the book of Job. And you may recall meeting Job's three miserable comforter friends. And these friends were convinced that God was mad. They believed that God was mad and God punished sin. But they were absolutely wrong. God is not mad. God is love. God is a God of love and goodness. God is holding the whole world together, keeping things going, sustaining and flourishing, pouring out his gratuitous love all over the place. And the friends misrepresented God as mad rather than seeing and understanding and knowing God as the infinite, loving, good God. Maybe this illustration will help, maybe it won't, but consider this possibility for yourself. How would you feel if I asked to borrow your car after church? And you say, oh, in love and generosity and goodness, yes, Tim, here are my keys, go borrow my car. And I don't know what car you drove here or where you parked, but maybe you parked, you know, in the 1500 block of South Clarkson. So I go and I grab your car, I get in, I just drive as fast as I can, not stopping at Iowa at the stops, and just like zoom across Iowa and slam it right into the front tree out here. <laughs> totally destroying the tree. So much so that we have to like have the tree, hire a company to remove the tree. And then a week later, you get a bill from the tree company that says, here's how much you have to pay for cutting down the tree that your car wrecked and damaged. How would you feel? Mad? Appropriately. And the same thing is true for God. God is appropriately mad and upset and frustrated and angry because his people take all these good gifts, just take it all in and, and receive it, only to turn around and literally spit in God's eye with disdain. Seems like in the Old Testament, it's a story of God's love of people 
who rarely love God back. And even when they take in all of God's goodness, they then turn around and say, God, why don't you love us? In God's love story, after a a sufficient number of years of giving his people of Israel a chance, God finally sends the promised Messiah. Finally sends the Messiah. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's next act in his story is to come to earth, to show people God's love, to demonstrate God's goodness, to show them that God is not mad, but God is love, and God wants to lavish on his creation. Well, here in the gymnasium of the soul this morning, there is your 20 minutes of love training for today. And I hope that in the next three days, you will resist this pull to shame or obsession with the past. You will resist any negativity bias that jumps into action. And instead, you'll open your arms wide and open yourself up to God's love filling you and just steeping into every place and every space within you. We are going to gather again Tuesday on Christmas Eve to celebrate the next part of God's love story as God leaves heaven to come to earth to be among us. Let's pray. God of love, God of love, God of love, fill us with your love. Fill us with your love. Please, fill us with your love. To your glory and enjoyment forever. Amen.